podcast, Let's Talk Sped Law, a podcast dedicated to discussing special education rights of children with disabilities. I'm your host and special education attorney, Jeff Forte. Now let's talk Sped Law. Hi everyone, attorney Jeff Forte here now with another podcast episode of Let's Talk Sped Law. What Pam and Pete Wright have to say about the current school closures as a result of the COVID crisis. Um, I'm very honored to have both Pete and Pam Wright as special guests on this uh, episode of the uh, of my podcast, Let's Talk Sped Law. Obviously, everyone knows uh, Pete and Pam Wright, and my introduction of them is certainly not going to do them any justice, but um, Pete Wright is an attorney who represents children with special education needs. He is one of a select few of parent special education lawyers who gave oral argument before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1993 in the seminal U.S. Supreme Court case Florence County School District 4 versus Shannon Carter and won. Pete also has trained over 200 um, employees and staff attorneys for the Office of uh, Civil Rights. And Pete and Pam, his wife, are the co-authors of a plethora of special education law books out there, written in layman's terms for parents, as well as attorneys and advocates. Um, Special education law, uh, rights law, no child left behind, rights law, IDEA 2004, rights law from emotions to advocacy, Rights Law All About IEPs, and Rights Law All About Tests and Assessments. Um, Along with Pete is his wife as well, Pam Wright, who also is the co-author of all the books that I've just mentioned. Pam has her master's degree in both psychology and in social work, and since the 1970s has been working with families and children of special needs. Both Pete and Pam are also adjunct professors at uh, the law school of William and Mary, where they teach courses on special education law and advocacy through the law school special education law clinic, which is where I had the pleasure of first meeting uh, both Pete and Pam. And of course, they are the authors and founders of the number one website in the U.S. for parents of children with disabilities, rightslaw.com. Like I said, I'm probably not doing your introductions justice, but Pete and Pam, welcome to the podcast, Let's Talk Spedlaw. I'm so happy to have you guys here. Well, Jeff, it's a real pleasure to to be here. And in preparation for today's uh, podcast with you, I listened to all of the ones you have done before, and I was in awe. Well, you know that I shared that with you. I said, "My gosh, this is really professional and and uh, very impressive." So we we both thank you for having us here today. Thank you, Jeffrey. Well, thank you, thank you, guys. You know, um, we're now let's talk sped law is almost in all fifty states now, and uh, I thought it would be a great opportunity to further echo everything that you've been doing um, on your website to uh, the audience of uh, Let's Talk Sped Law. So right now, uh, we are in uh, uh, late May 2020, and we have the school closures across the country because of the uh, COVID virus. 
And, you know, I wanted to get your input, um, Pete and Pam, on a couple of important questions that parents across the country are still trying to deal with. Um, now, for parents that don't know, in, in March of this year, March 21st, the U.S. Department of Education issued some guidance as to educating children during the school closure time period to the greatest extent possible. Now, districts are interpreting, quote, to the greatest extent possible in very different ways. Uh, well, let's start with you, Pam. What are you seeing across the country from state to state with the involvements that you're having with families as to what this guidance means? And in your opinion, what is to the greatest extent possible? What should we be expecting of our schools during this time? That's, 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 a, that's a very good question. I, and I think it's almost unanswerable right now. We are, no, to my knowledge, no one, no state has absolutely said they are gonna open on a particular date. They're, they're discussing whether they should start early, whether they should go through the summer, whether they should implement a year-round schooling plan. And until they actually discuss when they are going to open and come up with a date, even though that may change, given circumstances, it, it's very hard to say maximum extent, except to say that I think there are methods and means that school districts could be using and aren't using to provide services in children's IEPs and to do evaluations. So I think there's a failure there to actually implement current technology. So do you think that um, to the greatest extent possible should include having IEP meetings, for example, during this school closure time period? Should districts be obligated to be holding their annual IEP meetings, for example? I think so. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look at what all of America is doing now with regard to Zoom and the other similar video chats with their family members. We have seen a, uh, an incredible uh, surge in, in that direction just from social uh, dynamics of families. And if you can do it with your families, you know, the, the technology is certainly there to be able to do it with IEP meetings if the parents of the child have the ability to access the internet and have that type of, of uh, equipment and software. But some school districts are providing their students with Chromebooks and, and other kinds of hardware in addition to ensuring that they have the internet access. So uh, I think it's doable. I think I think it, the answer to that probably is it depends on what that in in some areas very few or say 20-25% of kids don't have internet access don't have a Chromebook so or if there's internet access it's very weak but I think in general, you, it, schools could definitely start that process and, and begin and should have begun that process before now and were in some areas. Uh, I've been in contact with people from Connecticut up in the northeastern part of the country, and there seems to be more going on up in your neck of the woods than down here uh, in Virginia and further south. 
Yeah, in yeah. yeah, in in Connecticut, we're we're definitely we, we definitely have the finger on the pulse with this. One thing that we're noticing, though, is that from district to district, this guidance is being interpreted differently, um, and the state has yet to really provide what they believe should be the appropriate footprint on how to implement it. Um, we are seeing a significant um, difference, though within the inner cities. And if we scale that out across the entire US, there's genuine inequities, I think, on how this is being delivered with fidelity across uh, socioeconomic populations. It's a mess. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a mess. And it's just all over the place. Yeah. The, um, I was reading some things about how schools, how to think about reopening, what types of plans uh, the leaders, education leaders have proposed and everything they come up with is going to be not good for one group or another. Yeah. So if you have all around schooling, you have uh, parents who want their kids to pursue other things in the summer and more middle-class parents. Uh, there's just, there's going to have to be a lot more individualizing of instruction than has been the case I think, previously. And, and we're, we're hearing uh, such an, an incredible uh, range and variety. Some school districts are absolutely hitting the ball out of the park, doing an incredible job with this. And some others, uh, and, and uh, some in the very affluent areas where you would think they would not have issues, are just dropping the ball right and left. And, and so it's kind of surprising of what we're seeing. It is pretty neat seeing what some of the districts are doing and how they uh, are engaging the, the, the children and the, and the, and the, the, the parents uh, in the whole process. So before we get to the really important topic of, you know, how are we going to reopen our schools? Um, what, one thing that we've been working on here in Connecticut is trying to help parents collect data on what they're seeing um, in their child's day to day. Because one of the actual, I think, positives out of this entire mess is that parents actually, now more than ever, will have more of a profound understanding of their child's strengths and weaknesses. And yeah. how does a parent best capture those strengths and weaknesses during this time period? So when they go back, when their child does go back to school, they can evidence some type of data. Um, We've actually come up with some data collection sheets of our own here in Connecticut to have parents use. Have you have you seen this kind of movement across the country where uh, districts are open to receiving data input from what parents are observing at home, or are they not open to that? Uh, I, I think you're going to you're saying in, in Connecticut they're open. <laughs> In, in most states, that's not on the table, although I've been encouraging parents from the beginning to keep a log, keep a method of just logging in what happens each day. It doesn't have to be lengthy, or it can be lengthy if there's an incident that is illuminating. But, but keep record of what is happening, what they're getting from the school, what the child is getting, what the response is. When they've contacted, have they have, and requested a meeting? Have as the school responded? A lot of I put up a question on Facebook about three or four weeks ago about 
what is going on and just was flooded with hundreds of very detailed descriptions of what people are experiencing. And it is wildly different. And I'd say it's a pretty good representative sample of, of at least people who go on Facebook and have internet and do that. So. Right. I think one of the big issues, Jeff, is going to be what, where was a child before COVID kicked in? Where's the child now? Where's the child three months from now? In terms of reading, writing, arithmetic, spelling, speech language skills, the, the basic skills that, that enable you to make it in society down the road in the future. And uh, I, I encourage parents who have, who have video of their child beforehand uh, to do video now, uh, having a child read stuff out loud uh, do they understand it, but have video reporting of it to be able to show down the road what, what was going on, what does a child need more work in, where has the child regressed, if the child has regressed or progressed, and that can end up becoming data of sorts. There are also resources online to be able to check some of those measures, some of the reading, writing, arithmetic, spelling kinds of, of uh, scores. Because we have to be able to show uh, what, what the kid's going to need. When we come up with, with uh, new IEPs, so to speak, or revised IEPs, uh, we're going to have to take into account what, what has been lost, what's, what's happened with this passage of time. And we're going to have to have data to do that. There's going to have to be uh, educational testing done before being able to come up with good prescriptive IEPs uh, for the children uh, as we get through this whole COVID issue. So you mentioned, you mentioned present levels of performance, and that's such a crucial thing. Um, you know, as far as like a timeline goes, we obviously have the pre-corona IEP-based present levels of performance while the child was in school. And when we get back into school, whenever that may be, which we'll talk about, how do you think we should... As, as parents of children with disabilities in school districts, systemically on a scalable basis, determine what these kids' uh, present levels or performance are now. I mean, um, I, I you know, for example, I've talked with some districts who proactively are trying to forecast this flood of evaluations and assessments and consults and you know baseline anecdotal um, observations. Um, what are your thoughts on how we could scale this out to get each kid's um, present levels of performance when we get back to school to determine whether or not they're at the status quo, advanced, or, or behind? I think schools are going to be overwhelmed with the need to do comprehensive psychoeducational evaluations of children to come up with decent quality uh, present levels of performance and what are the educational needs of the child for the future, which is, 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 a, is the issue. And so they're not going to be able to do it themselves alone. They, I uh, would think that they're going to have to contract outside in the private sector with many others, uh, psychologists, educational evaluators, to assist in the process of getting the data. Because there's going to be such a need, uh, such a groundswell of, of, of need going on. And... Uh, Beyond me is how school districts with the present staffing uh, before COVID back in, let's say, February, could 
could handle any surge like that. Uh, and now it's going to be much, much worse. But there are individuals out there who have the ability to do this testing. And um, I, I think it's time for them to, to, to tap on the private sector to come to step up and help them. Yeah. There's also, um, there are companies that do evaluations, psychoeducational evaluations, speech language evaluations, and they do it with, with their platform. Remotely, remotely. online. And I've, so I've done, I spent a fair amount of time on some of the websites and, and gone through and taken a webinar and how this actually works. So I think that would be a possibility. I think there's no way, there's been a school psychologist shortage for at least 20 years now, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. So there's no way that the current number of school psychologists can really do more than they were probably doing before. And, and, and essentially all these kids are gonna to need to be reassessed in terms of their levels. The, the, uh, this, is, this is interesting, the Texas Educational Agency, TEA, has been publishing documents along these lines about uh, present levels, compensatory ed. And they've been, they've really been ahead of most school systems. I and mean, I've been very impressed by what they've done since they're the, you know, the 7% people from previous, but they are talking about progress monitoring by the teachers and parents and work samples and teacher observations and progress monitoring collected by parents during at-home learning. And then they talk about the need for a formal reevaluation needs to be considered if it would yield missing data on the current performance level. And that's the guidance that the state is giving to the school districts down in Texas. Now, and that's very different from what's going on, for example, in Virginia. So, so bottom yeah. line, there's an awful lot of good quality resource, resource information on the Texas Education uh, uh, Agency's website. And, uh, and that's one of the school districts that has, uh, not school districts, one of the states that has really stepped up to the plate and gone far beyond where uh, many thought they would go. Uh, the, year, a few years ago, they were considered to be one of the worst in the country because of this cap they had on numbers of kids being eligible and the feds slammed them and you know, took a bunch of the money away. And now they've done a 180 degree shift and it's been very impressive to see. Uh, their position. And Pam mentioned the compensatory ed. There's going to be a couple issues keep popping up regularly. Um, uh, is my child going to need ESY extended school year? Uh, is my child going to be entitled to compensatory ed? Well, compensatory ed, the history of it, and on our website, we have a whole web page uh, that I just put up a, a couple weeks ago about the law of compensatory ed in terms of case law, because compensatory ed is not something that's in the statute or in the regs. It's um, uh, on on our uh, it's it's case law generated by judges. Pam, what what? Um, uh, and and so with, with with regard to the compensatory ed, it used to be school districts had to have dropped the ball egregiously before a child was entitled to compensatory ed. Case law has totally shifted away from that now. Uh, if the child didn't receive FAPE, then they're uh, is an entitlement to compensatory ed. And the mindset has been didn't receive FAPE because the school system dropped the ball. Well, you know, maybe the kid didn't receive FAPE unrelated to the school system, but because of this damn virus that's kicked in and schools having to be closed. So it's not necessarily a fault of a school district 
well, why the kid needs compensatory ed? So that's another issue that I think that uh, has to be considered. Well, as I say, Texas is talking about compensatory ed as a way to mitigate damage, the impact of the loss of skills or learning that would have occurred during the months that the child is out. And is it a punitive approach? It's simply mitigation for a problem that is no one, there's no one to blame for it. It just it needs to be dealt with. But the kid needs it. Right. So we don't want to necessarily be pointing fingers or blaming the school district, but just looking at the kid's educational needs. And, and that's what right. the, the uh, fourteen fourteen evaluation statute is all about, looking at what are the kid's educational needs, not why the kid has needs. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because in the March 21 guidance, uh, the U.S. Department of Ed actually states in here uh, the mention of comp ed. It says in, in, question, in question and answer A1, which I'll put on the blog, uh, the department, meaning the Department of Ed for the United States, understands there may be exceptional circumstances that could affect how a particular service is provided. An IEP team, in addition, an IEP team and as appropriate to the individual with a disability, the personnel responsible for ensuring FAPE would be required to make an individualized determination as to whether compensatory services are needed under applicable standards and requirements. You know, when I read this, it, it sounds like the this guidance kind of opened up and expanded the understanding of comp ed because you know traditionally you're right it it was kind of viewed as this well the district dropped the ball the district was somewhat negligent whether intentionally or not so therefore we need to uh, uh, you know make this child whole again by providing relief as a means of a, a remedy with with education hours but the guidance is it says otherwise it's sounding like the guidance is is understanding that Compensatory education may be used, but we're not delivering it in a way to address any punitive um, issue. And that's right. that sounds exactly what what you're what you're saying, and what Texas is actually steering the uh, you know language with. Is that is that right? Uh, that, that's that's my uh, uh, view of it. It's not that the school district dropped the ball and failed to provide faith. They couldn't provide faith. They were unable to because of COVID. But the kids still. Uh, needs compensatory ed right right so let's talk about you know esy um what are you seeing for extended school year what are you seeing across the country are schools opening up for esy are they still going to be delivering a distance learning plan is it a hybrid of the two what what have you been seeing i have been seeing nothing Mm. (laughs) I haven't done a, a survey of every, you know, state. I might do that in a newsletter. Oh, <laughs> it's slow. But, uh, yeah, I nothing is going on as far as I know in Virginia. Uh, Virginia has relied almost exclusively on, you know, packets of information or, or distance learning for even kindergarten kids. And you just can't do it that way, you know, with no... Nobody there to redirect, and you put the five-year-old in front of a screen. It's just not gonna, not gonna work. Right. So, um, but I think that ESY is going to definitely be needed. It's yeah. going to be very similar, uh, and almost maybe merge with compensatory ed in, in a sense. Uh, 
Well, they, they, they say that the ESY is to prevent the loss of skills. So that's a severe or substantial loss of skills or learning when school is out of session, whereas compensatory is to provide services that are needed to make up for services. So, so how people sort that out is going to be interesting. Uh, it, it seems to be a distinction that some people have difficulty really getting that, that ESY really should be considered for most kids with disabilities, probably all kids. And yes, and yet IEP teams are still saying, oh, that's only for children with cognitive impairments or the most severe cognitive. You know, it's still seeing that, that category discussion. No, 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 your child isn't eligible for that. I and that's totally incorrect. We hear that from time to time. Parents telling us their school district said ESY is only available for a child with this particular kind of disability. That is not true. It's nowhere in the statute or in the case law uh, does it say that. Uh, and the, the issue with ESY is regression and recruitment. Uh, how much has a kid regressed over the summer vacation, how long is it going to take for the kid to recoup the lost skills? Well, here, you know, we basically had, uh, in many instances, a quasi-extended summer vacation of sorts where kids have not been in, in, in regular school at all. And so I think that ESY is going to be something that's going to uh, have to be out there for so many kids. And the question really goes to, well, what is going to be the school year? Now, is the school year going to be traditionally from, from the uh, latter part of August through uh, May or June, or are we going to have schools now uh, uh, working during the summertime? And, and I, I certainly have seen some talk about schools doing that, and I, I don't know that we, uh, I think the COVID may get us away from the traditional school year mindset uh, at times. So uh, that's one of the future impacts, I think, of, of COVID and also more a distant kind of learning, uh, even with regular public schools. You know, in, in Connecticut, we just recently received guidance on the standard for ESY, and um, it's not good. I, I don't like it at all. One of the things that it says is that an IEP team, when making the determination for ESY eligibility, they are only to look at the um, student's progress from the beginning of the school year till through March. So they can't take into consideration anything during the school closure. And that, that seems to be the complete opposite guidance of yeah. what they should be doing. They should actually be looking at what is where is the child right now and have they regressed now so they can try to recoup some of it in the summer. Right. But, but you see, uh, Jeffrey, that was something that was issued by the State Department of Education. It's not a statute, it's not a regulation, it's not a legal decision from the U.S. District Court or the U.S. Court of Appeals. So it is nothing more than one bureaucrat's mindset as to what it should be. And, you know, a judge's mindset may be quite different. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think we have to be, we, we can't let ourselves get caught up into the box. Well, they said that's the way it is, so that's the way it has to be. That's not true. Good point, good point, Pete. So what have you heard about school district models uh, for the fall. I mean, in, in Connecticut, we there are I serve on this committee, a reopening school committee um, that uh, I was appointed through the commissioner for the Department of Ed. And there's kind of three working models, so to speak, and nothing's definite yet. So for the 
audience members in Connecticut, this is this is just a draft. This is not definite. But what one of them is where you would take half of the students in a particular grade and divide it up into two where half the class would go to school on Mondays and Wednesdays full day, six feet apart and everything. So you're reducing the number of people in the school. And then the other half would go to school on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays would alternate um, with, wow. with, with, the, with the understanding that then families, parents can go back and we can kind of get the economy going because they can at least go back to work two days a week. Um, yeah. Have you heard about anything like that? I have, yes. Um, there are so many things on the table in different states and in, and in different different um, cities. Miami uh, wants to extend the school into summer. In other words, start essentially in the, in the summer and then, and then later into the summer and then start earlier in the fall. But, but maybe that's only for some students like kids with disabilities, disadvantaged kids. Cleveland wants to reduce the curriculum to core subjects so they don't have to cover as much of the, you know, substance abuse or sex education or whatever the things that have been added on over the years, just reduce the curriculum to core academic subjects. Some people have had proposed a half grade step up for students that, that they would just automatically assume that a third grader is now a 3.5 grade and then, and then try to make it up. So the kid, but then, and then other people have just rec recommended retaining mm. whole bunches of kids, but you can't do that whole across the board though, because some kids are families can supplement during this time and are, are supplementing. So those kids are going to be in pretty good shape when they return. So, so this is really a case where one side doesn't fit all. Four sides, it's going to require a lot more thinking about individualizing instruction than is typically been the case historically. Right, right. Uh, you know, it, it, it's remarkable the number of ideas that are coming out of this. Um, and I think it's important that districts continue to be creative in how they're going to educate. Uh, w another model that I've found is a proposal is where you would take half of the kids for half of the day. So you'd have kids coming in in the morning and then they'd go home at lunch with a box lunch. And then meanwhile, the kids that are um, leaving, you're going to have the other half come in in the afternoon. So then at least we're getting full week half-day programs going on instead of just two days a week where we're getting the instructions repeated for half the class. Um, and then the last model is where we just continue distance learning completely, which which is also, you know, another model. Um, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, if you were to, if you were to be put in charge of a school district, right, Pam and Pete. Pam and Pete Wright University, you know, school districts of Virginia, you know, uh, where 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 Pam, you're the school psychologist, and Pete, you're the you're the superintendent, right? What what would you what do you think should be the uh, the guiding principles, I guess, for for reopening? I actually 
I actually experienced uh, door B or door two in that uh, I lived in a county that was experiencing very rapid growth in the 50s and 60s. And so they couldn't, the schools couldn't keep up. So they split us into two groups and it was a morning group and an afternoon group. And, and the instruction did focus primarily on your core academic subjects. And it made for a long day for the teachers, but it had to be done. So it was done. And I, I spent a year, I think I was the morning group and I've always not been a morning person. <laughs> but, but you can get quite a bit into four, say four hours of if you're efficient and not wasting a lot of time in the classroom. You can get stuff taught in four hours. Right. English, yeah, reading, and that kind of stuff. So I think, and, and that, that also provides the structure rather than you're going to school two days out of seven. I think kids need, most kids really benefit by that structure. So, and I don't remember, I remember feeling a little put upon, but, but you know, I was like in the 10th grade or something. So in 10th grade, you do feel put upon when anybody forces something on you. But yeah, that, that worked pretty well. Yeah. Jeff, you, you said if I was a superintendent, well, uh, I would um, be out of my comfort zone and uh, would know to, 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 to not get out of my lane. <clears throat> I would look to history in the past. What Before COVID, last fall, and, and even several years before then, we have had charter schools that are online virtual schools. We have had education where uh, it's the kids are home doing virtual charter school, and I would find out which ones have been doing the best job. What schools have have have, have you know, some of them have fallen by the wayside and just been ripoffs, financial ripoffs from parents and, and and committed fraud on parents. But some of them have done really good jobs and I've and I've been hearing about them from time to time and had parents ask me about this and about that and and I really kind of wondered how could a how could a charter virtual academy uh, operate and for the kids really to learn good content stuff. And, and I did have experience many, many years ago, back in the 70s, with a child that got pregnant when she was in high school. And they did not allow children to be pregnant in high school. And she got kicked out of school and came to see me about suing the school and everything. And we ended up getting her enrolled into a, uh, it was a Calvert School online correspondence uh, program used for people who were sailing around the world for their kids. She ended up graduating um uh ahead of her class she got so engrossed in it and moved so quickly through all the content areas and got all the carnegie units and everything i was and, and i think back to her uh, uh regularly and then the virtual uh charter online schools <clears throat> so i would find out who those people are who have uh, risen up to the top and i would get them involved in in helping me help the public schools plan the reopenings. I think public education, as we know it, because of what's happened these past few months, is going to take a major, major shift so that public education is not going to be a standard, regular bricks and mortar as, as we knew it last year. And it's evolving more into your, like your, your higher ed online correspondence programs or, or higher ed programs where you can get degrees doing it all without having to set foot in a, on a campus. So I think we're going to see a merger of those two concepts uh, take place, which will mean less time sp spent in the bricks and mortar school uh, uh, 
uh, and merger of both. So I would want to find those people who've been successful and get them involved right away in helping me plan in my state how to, how to implement uh, this merger and being sure we've got good, fast internet access for all the families, that they all had good hardware to work with. And, uh, and, and then the big issue is going to be what about the uh, single parent uh, uh, where the mom, uh, mom and one kid and uh, uh, mom has to go to work. We're going to have to figure out how we're going to deal with those kinds of issues. So that's going to be uh, problematic. But um, I, I think we're going to see a major shift uh, in the future uh, that's going to alter things forever. In, in back in the 40s, 50s, even 30s, I think, there were community centers and, and education took place in additional from what the kids got in a normal school. Uh, they were given extra education in these community centers after school was out because parents were working. And these this turned into a very positive experience for the kids. It was a more relaxed type of a situation, but, but these programs did plug the gaps that the kids needed to be able to go out and fill out a job application to do practical things, keep, keep a checkbook, write a budget, you know, write a letter. And, and yet there was also, um, recreation at these community centers so and creative type things so we may find that education is taking place in new places uh whether that's school sponsored or not i don't know but um it's an opportunity i'm just afraid we'll blow this opportunity to make things better and we really do have a chance to get away from the the old model which is about 150 years old now and and start to do some serious changes and uh, more flexibility so for for the children that are you know in that more uh severe severely challenged you know severely disabled category mm -hmm. where any remote distance learning no matter how it's delivered is just not gonna make right. an impact in their education right um what what are the steps that parents should be doing now during the school closure where their child's just not receiving anything, um, anything meaningful? What 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 type of recommendations would you have for those families? I, I think they need to be doing that daily log or progress monitoring or lack of progress monitoring. I think they need to, it has to be written. They have to have documentation to support what has been offered and what the child's response has been. Because these children are really going to need a lot of help when things finally do, when it's safe for the children to begin uh, receiving help. We're kind of stuck in mindset right now. Of, okay, can they, this happen? Since many, in my state, for example, they closed school for the end, to the end of the academic year, which, which in, was in early June. So people don't seem to be able to think, well, but it may be safe in July and August to start educating kids. So I think we need to be more flexible about that. And because these kids are going to, they really need a lot, but, and the kids, the, the dyslexic kids who were just finally, you know, getting it and now have had nothing, you know, there's just, it, it just is, a, it's a big job and people are going to have to be willing to put the time in and the mental energy in to creating these plans for, for kids. And what we've been talking about, Jeff, has been more about the youngster who does have the ability 
to sit in front of a computer. We've not been talking about visualizing the, the child with a severe, uh, profound uh, cognitive disabilities or the child with severe autism who, who uh, is unable to really fo focus on much of anything. And it's going to require different approaches uh, depending upon the degree of, of, of the disability and the severity. And, and in some instances, it's going to have to entail having the bricks and mortar facility for the child to, to go to in, in the daytime. And um, it, it's, it's going to be an incredible wide range of um, services that are going to have to be there thinking uh, from, from both ends of the spectrum, uh, from, from, from really, really difficult, hard to manage children with um, uh, severe neurological issues uh, all the way to the uh, more uh, uh, standard kind of a, a child with uh, um, disabilities that uh, might be LD type in nature or, or whatever. Right. Uh, and so they're not any easy answers. You know, Sally Smith, um, founder of the lab school, wrote a book way back in the 70s called No Easy Answers. And that is so true today. Still, no, no easy answers. Have you heard uh, about school districts? I want to move now to the IEP pages, right? Have you heard about school districts creating a interim IEP page or a distance learning IEP page as an addendum or an appendix to the IEP? <laughs> Pete's chuckling at this point. So, um, so have you heard about that? Have any districts done that? I know that we're trying to push for that in Connecticut. Have you heard Have you heard of, of any districts already doing that? Are you talking about like the contingency plans? Yeah, yeah. So for example, for, for the audience and for the parents that are, to put it into perspective, let's say you have a child with an IEP and they're getting speech, language, OT, and para um, every day during the traditional school setting with the deliverable of an IEP what part of that what part of those services should be implemented during distance learning and how should we best be capturing and memorializing what those services are in the uh, in in a distance learning program well I, what what I'm hearing and I want to make sure we're on the same page are school districts around the country states are putting out guidance for school districts to create contingency learning plans. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're called emergency learning plans. It's generally the concept that the IEP as written cannot be implemented. So this is our contingency plan. And these are generally written by attorneys uh, to try to protect school districts from uh, liability for failure to act at all <laughs> during this break. Um, so most states seem to have something like this. The deal is, though, that the IEP, this, this is generally something created by school people. And it's a kind of watered-down IEP, or it's, you know, you just get distance learning and a packet of, of materials, and the speech-language person will call you once a week if she has time. But this doesn't replace the IEP. So, so the contingency plan is in effect until school starts again, at which time the current IEP will be implemented, except the current IEP 
will be most likely over a year old at that point. So these things are essentially ways for, that's the school's best offer during an emergency crisis, recognizing that they can't implement the IEP as it's written, and it's more to protect them than anything else. There, there's a, a couple concepts here that uh, can be very dangerous for the parent if they're not aware of that. There, there's a concept in, in law called stay put, and the if there is a dispute, if there is litigation between parents and a school district, and the case goes up into due process, maybe in the federal court, the parent can insist that the child stays put in the current educational placement. And that educational placement is the last agreed upon, as a general rule, it's the last agreed upon IEP. And so there have been instances in the past where there, a child had behavioral disorders. This is before COVID. Child had behavioral disorders and school convened a new IEP saying we will uh, revise the IEP so that the child only spends a half day in school three days a week. Um, and parent agrees because uh, parent believes they have no other alternatives. So that's the last agreed upon IEP. And then if there's later uh, litigation, well, that's all the kid's going to get for as long as the case goes on until it's resolved. Uh, and it's very dangerous, the stay put concept, if a parent agrees to a watered down or garbage IEP. So my uh, uh, position on this is parents should not agree that this new plan, because of COVID, is a current new IEP. Instead, that we uh, we we both recognize that COVID has adversely impacted the ability to 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 provide the IEP services as written, uh, and we will work with you to to do the best we all can do with. Uh, understanding that the current IEP still is the current IEP. We're not going to change the IEP. Because if you agree to a change to a new IEP uh, that takes into account COVID, then uh, you have diluted the services down the road when services ramped up to a much higher level. Uh, and and you, so you have to be very careful about that. Yeah, yeah. One question, Jeffrey, I would have for you, in a sense, is if a parent contracts for speech therapy, OT, PT, those kinds of related services, or tutoring, could they make, could they get reimbursed for that? And should they write a 10-day letter saying this is what they plan to do and that they will ask for reimbursement at the end, you know, when, when the IEP can be implemented? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting that you brought that up, Pam. Um, a, a lot of that a lot of those questions have been stirring on Facebook here in Connecticut. And, um, you know, what one thing that I've been advising parents on to do is if they are feeling that their child is not being educated to the greatest extent possible through the district's distance learning plan, that they could do a partial notice of unilateral placement where they're putting the district on notice, uh, 10 day notice for various, you know, kind of, um, you know, services. So if they're, if they're, if there's an evaluator or a clinic that's open, that can be delivering certain services that were in the child's IEP pre COVID, that they could certainly get that done and seek reimbursement 
for it at a later date. I think that's where you're you're going with it, right? Yeah, yeah. Great yeah, point. The, the, the statute, um, it, it's in, in section fourteen twelve a ten c. That's the ten business day notice uh, that you're going to go ahead and 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 do this. I tell parents whenever you're going to. Uh, try to get a service for your child that's going to cost the school district money. And, and the statute typically only applies to private school tuition reimbursement. But I say, assume the statute applies anytime you're going to ask them to pay something. So you give them the opportunity, you give them advance notice that you're going to do this, um, give them the opportunity to step in and say, well, no, hold on, you don't have to do it, we'll do it. Uh, you give them the opportunity to cure and fix. And, and that's the purpose of the statute. So, um, uh, yes, if, if parents know that uh, the school can't provide the speech language the kid may need, but there is a, a, a person down the road there that is open, doors are open, and they can do it, uh, then, then your kid needs it. Right. That's the bottom line. Your kid needs it. And this uh, period of time when the kid doesn't get it because the school's not able to do it is damaging the kid. Right. And if you can get it elsewhere, by all means, go for it. Your, your job is to, 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 to help your child get educated as a parent. Right. You know, you, you mentioned something um, earlier in the show where you think that this is going to, as a result of the outbreak, the result of the virus outbreak, that this is going to actually change the educational landscape uh, forever. Uh, can, you, can you talk more about that, you know, especially in relation to how it's going to impact the economy and and parents having to go back to work um, and opening up of community centers, you know, and leaning on the private sector for additional evaluations and supports. How, how do you envision it changing and never going back to the way it was? Look, look at higher ed. Um, Ten years ago, did you know that you could get a, a, a master's degree in psychology and not have to set foot on a campus? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. But now you can, and, and it's legitimate. I mean, you 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 you're getting a you you can go online and and get a degree in something. Well, this happened to a a, a, a family member of ours that had had uh, some issues, um, and uh, grade point average went below what was uh, expected and got booted out, and there was some. Uh, uh, the ADA wasn't being complied with. The school was supposed to provide the youngster with extended time, did not, and uh, consulted with me. And I, I thought they had a damn good case, but they, you know, they didn't want to go after it. And um, she had, uh, I don't know, she was halfway through getting a bachelor's degree, uh, and but couldn't go back to this uh, school uh, and ended up applying and, and got her degree online. Um, and she, she's doing fantastic today. So she spent the last two years of college online and uh, never set foot uh, and, and uh, at the was, facility. She was done in nine months, I think. Yeah, got ahead of time. Because yeah. she was very, very bright. <laughs> very- uh, and, and she could move at her own speed on, on things. And, um, and, and we're going to see more and more of that, I think. Uh, it's going to filter down from higher ed into to, to, to regular uh, uh, public school and, and regular ed settings. What are your thoughts on that, Pam? Well, I think I think there there is value to kids being together and and the social type thing. I don't think that 
sitting in a classroom with 20 or 30 other kids is necessarily the best way to learn stuff efficiently. And, uh, so I think like Khan Academy, I'm a big fan of Khan Academy. And when I need to learn something or I need to relearn something, I go to Khan Academy and take a class right? Uh, and, it, and I can whip through it. So, um, and you can take the speed of the playback and bump it up by 1.5 or 1.75 sometimes. You know, that's one of the, the fun things of, of learning stuff online. You can increase the, the, the playback speed. Right, right. What you're speaking about is kind of what I've been thinking about, that we have an opportunity. And I'm afraid that there will be – the schools are the most resistant to change of any organization I've come in, I would have thought the military, which is very, very resistant and is proud of it, but schools are actually more resistant, I think, than the military to change. They want that, they want that eight to three or whatever day, and they want it nine months, the teachers want three months off in the summer and on and on. So there's resistance all over the place when you want to change something. Middle class parents don't want their kids to go to school in the summertime. They want to send them to camp or to an athletic thing or whatever so uh, so well, you know you have, to have more choices 12 months okay. having a 12-month school there's no country in the world there, there's no country that has 12-month education right right i don't believe that <laughs> <laughs> right well who knows i think this is going to definitely uh we're not going to have any school school closures because of snow days anymore. That, that that's probably going to happen, right? <laughs> so let, let's talk a little bit about rights law. I know that you have a new book coming out, right? We we got well, we got several in process actually. Um, uh, we have a um, the, the the ones come out going to come out next immediately will be our year in review series. Uh, every year from 2015. Uh, we've published a book that is a, uh, has all of the U.S. Court of Appeals special ed cases. It's not the full text of the court case. I took the critical parts of each decision and synthesized them, but used the quotes directly from the decision. So many times I will read someone's analysis and summary of a case, and I'll think, Hmm, that's really strange. And I'll go back and read the case myself because I don't like reading other people's opinions about a case. I want to read the case and I read the case and I discover that what I take away from it is quite different from what someone else did. And I, I learned early on, I guess, as a lawyer to, to go back and read the case itself. And our book has quotes directly from the judges, uh, not my summary of, of the case. And there is between 60 to 75 cases each year that are specially led by the U.S. Court of Appeals. That's one step below the U.S. Supreme Court. So we have 2015, 16, 17, and 18 out on our website already. We have them as PDFs, so you can immediately download the book. And Amazon approached us after the 2015 book and wanted, or during that time, and wanted to have a print-on-demand uh, and so we agreed. So you can buy the print version from Amazon. You can buy the PDF from us. You can't buy the PDF from Amazon. And the next book, we're, we're, we've finished it up uh, totally now, the 2019 book. And uh, it's, it's, uh, I have some individuals who are going through it, editing it, finding my typos or where I was not clear on, on something or, or whatever else. 
and uh, that's about ready to go to print. And then uh, uh, the, the next one after that, and I've done uh, about 90% of it already, is our uh, red law book that is so well known that has IDEA 2004 in it. That statute has not changed. The only thing that's changed has been case law over time. There have been about three minor changes in the uh, statute in terms of the words. And so we're coming out with a third edition of the law book, and it's going to be much more annotated than the one before with a lot of reference to the cases and, um, and putting much more depth on it uh, with regard to 504 and ADA. 504 and ADA have have really jumped up in the frequency of the number of cases in, in the past uh, five years or so, have really taken off. So many, many more cases now are, are 504 ADA cases. And there have been jury trials where uh, uh, big, big verdicts uh, have, have come out there with regard to a violation by a school district. Um, and uh, so so the, the next book that we're coming out with after we uh, get the 2019 year in review book out, uh, then will be the revised edition of the law book. And in that, we're not going to include the U.S. Supreme Court cases as we did with the earlier version. Uh, so we're making room uh, for more of the ADA uh, and 504 statute and regulations and more discussion about the cases that are that are out there. And so. your 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 programs, um, are, are you doing them remotely now or are you going... Uh are you getting back on the road and doing your, your training programs in various cities? We haven't started doing them remotely yet. We do have um, my one-day uh, program is uh, available on our website as a download. We're shifting it over to all MP4. It's a WebEx file before uh, separate files that, that, that we will have as MP4 files in the next couple of days, and that's available. But that, that's old. And that is using the old red law book. And I do have a bunch of programs scheduled in the fall, and I'm getting in for programs for next spring. But I do expect that we're going to be much like public education. We're going to have some <laughs> webinars and online training uh, also. Uh, and uh, we haven't devised a model exactly for that yet. I think, I think I've been looking into various uh, organizations that do training and and what platforms are using and how they structure, say, Pete's six-hour uh, program, which generally is a little more than six hours, but how to break that down so that uh, and what time to present it, to do it live so people have some benefit from it, how, how to limit the number of participants so people don't feel like they're just locked out of being able to ask questions. So I, I'm, I'm experimenting. With that, I think it would be a great opportunity to be able to do that. Pete will go away; he'll be gone for four days for a program that's one day long. You know, with the, with getting there two days early in case his flight gets bumped, uh, preparing, doing the program, and then a day back. You know, flying back. It, it's four days for one. So I think that's a way to do it a lot more effectively. And a lot of people can't go. We, you know, say there's 20 a year, and they're in metropolitan areas of people that are shut out unless they can travel a good distance. So I think it'd be a good, would be very good. It, it's learning to do something else new. And uh, I always like that. And Pete's more resistant to change. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get there. Good, um, good. Yeah. Well, Pete and Pam Wright, it's, 
it's it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. And by the way, congratulations again on your um your lifetime achievement award with with Copa. Uh, that was the last time I think we saw each other right before the yes, virus yes, hit well, in March. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, I appreciate your your mentioning that Copa. For those who are not familiar with Council of Parents, Attorneys, and Advocates, uh, organization that was founded. I don't know uh, sometime in I think in the uh, late 80s or early 90s, and Pam and I were uh, uh, part of the original group that helped found it, it uh, www.copaa.org. They uh, gave us at the annual conference uh, just a few months ago, it was in March, um, they gave both of us a, a Lifetime Achievement Award, a beautiful plaque, and it caught us by surprise. We did not know that we were going to receive that award, um, and uh, it was... It was um, uh, what? No, no, I mean, we, we learned about it about a couple, yeah, yeah, we knew a couple weeks before we were going to receive it, but I mean, it, it, it really, uh, it was quite an honor, um, yeah. and, and uh, I appreciate your, your bringing that up. You know, the, the most moving part about um, watching you receive the award was at the end, Pete and Pam, when you asked, I believe you asked all of the first-time COPA attendees to stand up, the, the newest members of copa and and uh you know you 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 gave them some parting words that that they're the next generation to steer the way for uh special education rights and that that was really touching it was really really great speech well, well you know I've, uh as i've uh, been, been um finishing up this this last book i'm dedicating the year in review book to copa and i started to uh list a number of individual attorneys and when I was doing been doing the year in review books uh, I keep on and I run the cases down to see who the attorneys are um, and, and read the earlier district court opinions and I see names of the old farts out there the old farts, <laughs> you know, people like me that have been doing this I, I've been I've been I, I got into special ed I've been doing special ed law since the, I guess the late 70s and and there's so many other attorneys out there that have uh, just done incredible jobs in, in transforming the whole field of special ed for the benefit of the parents because I see all these names and I'm thinking, you know, some of them are dropping off and, and we've had uh, uh, too many pass away. A few have, have retired, but some of them are still like me. They're still out there. I'm not practicing actively, but I'm still active in the field with the books and I'm seeing all these names and I'm thinking, you know, um, they, they have really just done an incredible job. And then I look at you. Jeffrey, you went to the ISEA program, Institute William, uh, that we had Institute of Special Advocacy at William and Mary. That's where we first met you, and, and you were just young blood then. And you were one of the people I was thinking of when I when I when I said that, because you all give me the future of all this as, as we pass by the wayside, uh, and, and things like what you're doing tonight today, today with with this. Uh, uh, podcast and and uh, and it's all the new generation and y'all really stepping up to the plate and I'm so glad to see that uh, it really it, it it's 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 really great it's fantastic and I thank you I thank you uh, Jeff for doing this well thank thank you again Pete and Pam right it's it's been a privilege and an honor to have you on the show um, for for our audience please visit rightslaw.com uh, there's going to be some new books coming out. 
and um, the the programs, the parent training programs, and the advocate training programs are 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 still going forward. Um, perhaps you know remotely, and in a city near you. And uh, stay tuned for another episode of Let's Talk Sped Law next week. Thank you, Pam and Pete Wright. Thank you. Thank you.